Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. If I have seen further than others, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants, is a quote from Sir Isaac Newton, the English mathematician, physicist, astronomer, theologian, and author who was widely recognized as one of the most influential scientists of all time. I thought the quote and who it was from was apt for our guest today, who believes that mathematicians can do anything, yet ironically missed out in the younger years to study maths, but as chairman has had the opportunity to work with and oversee the giants in corporate Australia. Today's podcast is a rare opportunity for those wanting to know how one of the most experienced business leaders thinks and operates. This is insight from a person who started out as an article clerk for a prestigious law firm, built a formidable reputation in mergers and acquisitions, became partner by 29, later chairman, and has touched or influenced almost every sector in the Australian economy. Our guest today is Kevin McCann AO, who during his illustrious career has challenged the establishment, has championed new thinking in the boardroom, has broken down the directors club, and in so doing had the privilege of being chairman of Macquarie Group and Bank, Origin Energy, HealthScope, Citadel Group, ING Management, the Sydney Harbour Federation Trust, and was a director of Blue Scope Steel. Today he's chairman of Telex Pharmaceuticals Limited and China Matters, a director of Evans Dixon Limited, and a trustee of the Sydney Opera House Trust. He was made an officer of the Order of Australia for Services to Business, Corporate Governance, and as an advocate for gender equity. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode, Kevin shares with us what a chairman looks for in a CEO and what is leadership. What are the machinations in the boardroom and what's changed? We also examine the tough questions surrounding Australia's global competitiveness and cover tax reform, red tape, the environment and policy, the learnings from the Hain Royal Commission, immigration, innovation and creativity, as well as the role of business in society and actually what is diversity. So sit back and enjoy this open and very wide-ranging conversation. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Kevin, can you talk us through this uh, illustrious career you've had? Oh, well, I'll start at the beginning. Okay. Um, I grew up in Perth. My family came to Sydney when I was 10. Uh, I was educated at uh, Sydney University, tertiary education, did a couple of years of postgrad in, uh, in uh, Harvard. I uh, trained in arts law and okay. did a postgraduate law degree and uh, worked at a firm called Allen Allen & Hemsley and came back uh, 
after I'd finished my postgrad work and was there for about 40 years. And what was the fascination of law? Was that from mum and dad, friends, family, or? Well, it was sort of forced on me. I didn't do STEM subjects, yeah. so that that wiped out medicine. It wiped out being an engineer, and uh, so having a liberal arts background, law was the obvious career. And in those days, Kevin, was there an area of specialisation for you? Uh, not really. No, we in those days, apart from criminal law and divorce, um, and Alan's partner did everything uh, from wills, family law to corporate transactions. And you were made partner at a fairly young age, if I remember rightly. Yes, uh, when I was 29. So what do you think made you stand out from the rest? Well, I was, um, had reasonably good academic grades. The thing about the partnership in those days was that most people had uh, honours degrees. Um, very few of them had done postgraduate work. But uh, I came back with reasonable academic background. I was hardworking, ambitious and uh, curious. And with that, Kevin, how long did you stay in in law for? Uh, Well, I retired as a a lawyer in 2004, Mm -hmm. but the firm in those days was very generous. They let their partners take take boards. So when I finally quit in 2004, I walked into a – I had a very large number of boards, Macquarie, Origin. So what was the genesis of that, Kevin? What made you want to go from being a practicing lawyer uh, to building this career in the boardroom and also a very successful career in the boardroom? Oh, well, look, there's nothing planned about it. Um, in uh, I did a lot of work for Pioneer Concrete. The founder of that company and executive chairman was Sir Tristan Antico, mm-hmm. and uh, he and I collaborated on some very big transactions for Pioneer. Right. Uh, and at, out of the blue, when I was 36, he said, would you come and join the Pioneer board? And that right. absolutely shocked my senior partner, who said he's made a terrible mistake and rushed down Macquarie Street to suggest some other partner get appointed. But uh, Tris was the sort of person who backed backed individuals and and liked youth. And <laughs> I was I was I, I fitted the bill. What were the challenges that Pioneer were facing in those days? Uh, they didn't have a lot of challenges in those days. They were on a very rapid acquisition phase. It was okay. one of the few international companies, and so we had. Good footprints in uh, Hong Kong, uh, United Kingdom, uh, and Europe. But we went into the United States, and we went through through ASEAN countries as well. So it was it was a case of a rapid expansion in the core business. Kevin, in building your board portfolio, what are you looking for? What are the key characteristics that are going to make you join that board? Oh, look, in the early days, it was it was people offered me opportunities and. Um, person who was very generous to me was Nick Griner when he was Premier. Um, HCF was an organisation controlled by government that was in trouble. Right. And so he asked me to go onto that board. I didn't know a lot about health, but I rapidly discovered that that was, a, that was an area of importance and interest. Uh, he also asked me to go on the rail board, and I didn't know much about trains, but that was fascinating. So because I was curious and uh, I enjoyed doing research, I found that uh, I could I could move from sector to sector, and after a while, people told me, for instance, in health, that it would take me five years to understand it. I found I got on top of it reasonably quickly by by doing adequate research. Uh, in later years, of course, I became a lot more um, careful about uh, opportunities I took or was offered, and yeah. spent time on due diligence to satisfy myself that that I had the qualifications needed or I was interested in the sector and that I 
felt the people I was associating with were people I wanted to be engaged in business with. You've also worked on some, well, I guess throughout your career, you've been on international boards. Comes to mind, obviously, Origin Energy, Macquarie Group, Mm. and chair in both. What's the the dedication required from a chair uh, in in such organisations? Oh, Greg, the role of the chair is completely different from the role of a uh, non-executive director. Okay. Uh, He or she is the link between the board and the chief executive. Uh, He or she has to set the agenda for board meetings. Uh, He or she has to uh, pass on tough messages from the board to the chief executive. Uh, As Don Argus said, you have to be uh, friendly but not friends. Um, So it's got to be a professional relationship. And uh, you also have to spend a lot of time communicating not only with your chief executive but also getting to know the the senior leadership group and and understanding their strengths and weaknesses. And in your experience, Kevin, what's changed over the last 10, 15 years of the requirements to be on the board and also to to engage effectively in the boardroom? Yeah, look, uh, in the early days it was a part-time activity. Um, It was – boards were populated by – people who had retired, inverted commas, mm-hmm. uh, were ge- generally elderly males. Uh, it's completely changed. The, okay. the, the, the the role of a director is now a professional role and you have really a case of continuing learning. You've got, a, under, you've got to understand the, the sector you've got, that you're, you're working in. You've got to understand the regulatory framework. Uh, you have to be across economic trends. Uh, you you really, really really need to know the strengths and weaknesses of your business, and uh, where the opportunities from growth lie. So it's 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 a it's a being a professional director is is full time, and being a chairman there's a there's a limit on how many roles you can take and fulfil the, the task properly. Do you have a thoughts on that and how many roles one can take? Do you think there's there's a there's a view out there that some some directors own too many boards? Uh, I think there's there's some. Notable examples, I would have thought two major boards would be an absolute stretch. In the UK, it, it is usual for the chair to be expected to put in, in, in the uh, FTSE 100 yep. uh, three or four days a week into the company and you, you would only take one major board. What sort of time would you put into both Origin and, and Macquarie when you are chair? It actually varies because uh, yeah. if you've got business as usual – which you never do. Um, you've got you've got the, the half year and the full year, which are always a busy time. If there's major transactions, uh, it can be seven days a week. Um, so, in the case of Origin, when there were takeover bids, uh, in the case when we had our relationship with Conoco Phillips, that was that involved a great deal of time and and travel to the United States to to uh, undertake the the transaction that was being proposed by them. So if you and if you've got major litigation or reputational issues, you've got to be basically available when required. You mentioned the word uh, regulation a bit earlier, Kevin. Has that changed somewhat in the last five years? Oh, the last five years. Well, I was going to go back to um, when I started uh, corporate law, and okay. and the corporations law was a very slim volume. Now you cannot get a printed copy that's up to date because of the number of amendments that are being made. So, so the corporations law is complex. The uh, laws around your industry are complex, whether it's environmental. Uh, I th- 
things like the Modern Slavery Act, um, yeah. uh, things like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is now being quite rigorously enforced. Um, more and more, uh, you've got you've got the ASX uh, rules, which are much more extensive. So it's 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 completely changed. You've you've now got a and if we look at the lessons of the Royal Commission, I think one of mm. the things that happened is that. We had profound changes to uh, financial advice, the future of financial advice, and we also had the consumer protection laws on on responsible lending. Yes. And I think the industry failed to realise the cultural change that was required in the way they did their business. Okay. And the, and the leaders, as leaders, we failed to um, take our workforce along with us so that while you people will grumble about the Modern Slavery Act, that is is a very profound piece of legislation that requires leadership to say to explain to people why that was brought in and why we have to take it seriously. How do you test for it, Kevin, along the journey? As you say, social norms and social expectations have certainly changed. And as you said, maybe the leadership's might have missed that, but how, how do you keep up to speed with that litmus test? Well, look, you can you can look backwards and look forwards. Mm-hmm. Looking backwards, you look at customer complaints, you look at uh, uh, compliance breaches, uh, you look at uh, breaches of uh, of control rules, um, so that's all looking back. But I've I've concluded, Greg, that looking forward, uh, it's up to the leaders to actually think about what the legislation is going to do to their particular industry, and then not outsource it. There's there's a great there's a great habit of going to one of the big four accounting firms and asking for a manual, uh, and handing the manual to the workforce, you've actually got to personally go and explain the policy behind the legislation and what uh, what we have to do to comply with it. And with that, Kevin, and the pace of change, is the level between the execs and the directors getting a little bit muddled? I think there's a huge blurring of responsibility. And Greg, if you're in the highly regulated industry like the finance mm. sector, mm. Um, there is a danger that you are that the regulators and the legislation is requiring directors to get involved in management. Too much so? Uh, I think I think we're getting very close to uh, that that situation, yes. So very, very important, and I guess looking at your career, that you've got good chief execs and leadership teams underneath you, but you've had some very, very good chief execs in you. Look, I think that's uh, ultimately the key to business success. Mm. It's, it's the quality of leadership. And it's the culture of the organisation. And Macquarie is an example of that. Um, okay. They appoint from inside. Um, so we've I've worked with uh, with really the three um, people who are, have, are leading or have led Macquarie. Uh, they all had long periods with the company and they absolutely believed the Macquarie culture. And it was a very simple set of set of guidelines, which is opportunity, accountability, and integrity, and it was a bottom-up culture, um, not a top-down strategy. Okay, uh, a lot of people struggled with that who were on our board. Uh, they were used to the top-down, where the CEO would say, "We're going to South America." Nicholas Moore or Shamara or um, uh, uh, Alan Moss would never say, "Go to South America." It was a decision by the individual groups as to whether they saw opportunities there. So right, yeah, yeah, okay, right. Yeah. How did the board guide through that, Kevin? Oh, it was very challenging because uh, Macquarie had uh, at one stage about eight groups and a whole lot of subgroups, and they were highly specialised. So for um, 
a non-executive director, particularly people who didn't come from the finance sector, it was it was very challenging. And uh, given that the company now has got a large principal book um, where their own capital is going into transactions, uh, you, you had to understand renewables. You had to understand yep. the difference between uh, wind and, and solar. Uh, you had to understand the subsidies that supported those those kinds of transactions, which of course made it a really fascinating uh, organisation to be involved with. You're also across international markets and with both you know energy trading yep. and, and the banking environment. Yep. Uh, you're exposed to politics. You're exposed to some key decisions which you've got no influence over. Hmm. How turbulent and how difficult and how big were some of those calls you got involved in? Well, first of all, you had to understand the um, the environment you were working in. Mm. And America, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that two countries divided by a common language. And we make the mistake of thinking because we speak English, the environment is the same. The American environment is different from the English environment. It's it, each, each country is different and also Canada. So uh, we, we really needed to understand we're in a different environment and we'd have to uh, un- tease out some of the puzzles. Why is it America, which has terrible infrastructure, awful awful airports, um, problems with bridges, problems with uh, water water and, uh, and, and sewerage? Um, well, because it's a federation and you've got states and states still have a lot of authority. And despite being the land of the free, um, Americans like public ownership. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so that was a puzzle to us, and there was no, there was no um, culture of privatisation that we had in Australia, and to a large extent in the United Kingdom. So, we had to get our heads around that uh, if we were going to succeed in that environment. What about the uh, the, the likes of the the global financial crisis? Uh, well, we had a situation where Nicholas came in in two thousand and nine. Uh, my chairman, David Clark, became very ill and I was an acting chair. So he had a, an acting chair and a, and a brand new CEO. And uh, uh, September 2009 and uh, March 2010 were were really, really challenging times. And um, How uh, tough was it, Kurt? Really tough, really tough. Um, we had, you, you might recall, Greg, that the government banned... Uh, shorting of stocks and yep. they provided support to companies for for uh, for borrowings and they gave the reserve bank also provided support as well but despite that the shorts were very clever they discovered um, credit default swaps and they started to short those so that we were we were being shorted in a very opaque and unregulated market all right and so from uh, September when Lehman collapsed to uh, 2010 mm-hmm. were, were probably our toughest toughest moments but uh, I, I was involved uh, my board was as acting chairman mm. were, were absolutely united there was no panic and, and Nicholas Moore um, I've always described as a man for all seasons we we knew he could make lots of money in the bad times but Nicholas turned out to be an outstanding leader in the really tough times and what were the other lessons you learned from from the board and under pressure uh, boards are interesting. Some some people head for the hills when mm. the going gets tough. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you've got a if you've got a strong board, we work together. Obviously, uh, you have the chair and the CEO and probably one or two other directors and some key executives form a ad hoc subcommittee to work through the work through the issues. 
and then you keep your your colleagues involved as the matter, as transactions or issues get resolved or arise. And I, I found that 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 was a good way to deal with a crisis. You also faced other crises in sense of oil oil price uh, and uh, and the whole battle in energy. Where do you see energy policy in Australia, Kevin? You've been chairman of Origin Energy Group. What is happening and what are we supposed to be hoping for? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of things to say before I answer that question. One is that we have we have got into this situation through very poor policy. Yeah. Uh, with hindsight, we probably should have had a reservation policy, which was the one which America had. America didn't allow exports of, of oil or gas till they were absolutely certain they had a huge surplus. Uh, but our, our resources up in Queensland would not have been developed without export contracts. So it, we, we, we had that uh-huh. issue. But having having said that, we also had a renewables policy, which was not well thought out. And, and so we got a situation where uh, renewables started to put the ageing kit plant of uh, coal-fired power stations out of business. Yeah. Now, having said all that, Greg, we're in a mess, and how do you dig yourself out? Well, yeah. no, one, no one's giving us an answer, Kevin. Well, answer number one is Victoria and New South Wales should stop their moratorium on the exploitation of coal seam gas. Uh, the uh, Pilagus Grub has got the resources to fix a lot of the uh, East Coast issues. The, the second, the second, so that's, that's fracking. Yep, yep. And so there's a couple of outspoken people against that, as you know. Well, you're, you're absolutely right about that, but the, the truth of the matter is that um, the, the science is in favour of fracking if it's done responsibly. So you can't you can't have a fracking w- without impairing the water table or or polluting um, um, the artesian basin. So so that's that's one thing you can do in in the very 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 short term. Uh, I, I agree with the sentiment that we do not want a, a complete flight of of our manufacturing. And so we're going to have to. I would think we we're going to have to find some way to subsidise um, the manufacturers while we get through this this two to three year period. So, in your experience, then the level of engagement between business and governments, mm-hmm. where do you see us compared to other parts of the world? Are we so far not joined from the hip? We're you know obviously we're still battling around this whole policy on energy, and it's been going backwards and forwards for a long, long period of time. Well, it, it's complicated by the federal system. When Anna Bly was Premier of Queensland, you couldn't have had someone more supportive. All right. And as a result of her support to the industry, we got we got the three plants at uh, Gladstone. Yep. Uh, but then the federal government got involved because it, it uh, decided that the states on an individual basis weren't capable of, of fixing the supply problem. And uh, But unfortunately, we've had chops and changes in the policy and breaking up vertically integrated companies is not the answer and to have price controls is certainly not the answer we're going back to the solutions of the early 1950s uh, but but where you've got a, a market that's not working you do need to you do need to uh, provide intervention that's that's sensible and as i said i think if we got the supply flowing in from victoria and from new south wales we could fix it in a 2 to 3 year time frame but in the interim we're going to need a, a solution um, to provide so that we don't have more and more manufacturing activities leaving our country. What about the price of carbon, Kevin? Oh, look, I, we were at Origin always in favour of carbon trading. The John Howard Initiative um, in 2007 
a cap and trade we thought was a very good system and in new zealand where we had we had a business um the uh, the clark government brought in a cap and trade system that worked very well fairly low price but signaled that carbon wasn't free and if you had carbon emissions you you needed to do take action to abate it where do you see us can i guess why we're talking about this now on a broader scale australia's role in australia's future growth potentials um in the sense of our exports and our relationships uh, in this you know, ongoing trade war discussion we hear and read daily. Look, um, Greg, we've done very well in commodities, and uh, I, I don't subscribe to the view that it was all good luck. Uh, the people who developed the iron ore and the coal did a very fine job. Yeah. Uh, the LNG people have done a good job, and dare I say it, Australian universities who have 35 billion of exports uh, That's right, have yeah. done a good job too. But as Governor Lowe said, we can't rest on our laurels. And so we've got to get ourselves into a country where it, we're fit for the 21st century. And I'm really optimistic about our technology and some of our pharma startups. And we have some really good companies uh, who, who have got global platforms. And that is the key to it. These companies have got a solution to a particular matter that the, the world wants a solution for. And, and they have global platforms as opposed to simply being domestic companies. And that, I think, is a, is a really good place to be. Are they getting the capital support, Kevin? Uh, well, we don't have the pools of capital that you've got in the United States. Yep. And uh, the pension funds and the, the industry funds don't won't support that generally. So it's going to require private capital. Yep. And that is at a very, very infant stage. Yeah. Uh, but... I, I'm uh, involved with a with a pharma company, and there is money in Australia for these kind of companies, which which are high risk, but will have the opportunity for really uh, providing great solutions for uh, treatment of people with cancer, and uh, and having a global platform. In, I mean, for in cancer treatment, China, most Chinese people reporting to hospital are in stage four, which means they are not going to survive. Right. So if we can have um, programs where uh, we can offer them uh, survive, uh, the ability to be diagnosed at an early stage, yeah. uh, we're going to save a lot of Chinese lives. And I think President Xi Jinping is very supportive of those initiatives. So where do you see our relationships with China? Uh, well, it's a big challenge. Um, mm. The challenge for Australia is how do we continue with our policy of the alliance with the United States? So um, there are people saying that we've we can't have the Balancing Act any longer, but I think the wise heads in Canberra um, believe that we've, we've got to work on that and be agile enough to, to manage both relationships. You mentioned the play of private investment. There's comments coming out of the US that you and I discussed earlier regards to large corporations potentially going more, more private. Do you see that happening in Australia? Oh, it is. I mean, private equity is extremely well-funded and has certainly got the capital to take companies private. And there's a, quite a number of companies, really, that if they can access that capital are better placed because the capital is more patient, whereas the market is not particularly patient and we are expected and to have a, have a setback in, in a market is, or well, the market punishes you very, very severely. As you've seen in the reporting system, Greg, people dropping 20, 30, 40%. Yeah. Kevin, what do you think of that? Capital was lost overnight. Uh, confidence is suddenly down overnight. 
based on analysts uh, making an interpretation or maybe you're a chief exec or a chair, uh, as we discussed, so you're maybe not prepared to give guidance in uncertain waters. Uh, are we actually measuring success properly? Well, I think uh, responsibility is on both sides. And having reflected on this, I think that if, you, if you've got a share price that's at some extraordinary multiple against uh, EBITDA, I'm beginning to wonder if we shouldn't express some caution because no one wants to do that. Uh, yeah. They they think that's wonderful. People enjoy the fact their share price is is, is flourishing. Yes. But the consequences of disappointing are so profound that it would be better to have a, a, a steady increase in a share price rather than spectacular increases. And with small caps, uh, the retail people can get, uh, what is it? Kane said, animal spirits, and yep. and the price gets bid up. Where do you see the whole discussion regards bonus and REM? You've got proxies, you know, going to slap people over the wrist. Strike one, strike two. We spend an awful lot of time in Australia on, on remuneration, um, and we are having to rethink the, the standard model. Um, I think that in the finance sector, we now retain a lot of the earnings, a significant proportion of the earnings, but of course... The model there is different, low base, very high bonus, whereas in, in the case of, um, of conventional companies, the base is very high and, and the LTI and the STI is the, is the add-on. Mm. But I think retention of, of some of that is, is going to be needed in order to um, ensure that uh, where there is unsatisfactory performance or errors, uh, that there's a sanction after the event. Because at the moment, uh, you'll find that people people get paid out LTI awards and then two years later, you discovered something's happened in the company that uh, re- really was negligence or, or worse. So you're a supporter of clawbacks? Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yep. Anything, and you don't think that's, we've done that enough in, the, in this country? My experience of clawbacks is the lawyers get hold of them and tell you you can't, you can't claw back. And so what yeah, you okay. need, you, <laughs> we're realizing now that if you're going to have a clawback, it's got to be in the absolute discretion of the board. Um, now you you might think that's that's an alarming prospect, mm, mm. but the fact is boards act responsibly. We're not we're not going to turn off our our management without really good cause. So we're not going to be irresponsible. Uh, we're we're not we're not going to be capricious. Otherwise, we're going to lose our management. So I, I think that's I think that's the only way we can make clawbacks or malice clauses work. But we haven't got there yet. No, but it's, there's been a number of discussions around it and um, some, some, tend to, some good arguments for some reasonable cases. Kevin, the board's got one big role to hire and fire of the CEO. How do you judge a CEO? What, do, what are the characteristics you look for? Because you've had a couple of very, very strong CEOs. Well, you've got to have, you've got to have um, CEOs, Greg, who are macro and micro. They can see the big picture for their company, but they've got to be across the detail. You cannot be a big picture person and neglect the detail and so the people that I've worked with who have been outstanding have been able to, to, to grasp that leaders also um, have to be constantly before their workforce so the town hall meetings are very powerful and not to be perfunctory um, they, they've got to be they've got to be genuine and they've got to be authentic uh, they're people who have to be uh, adaptive because Given we've now got a community that is is uh, uh, very judgmental of corporations, we've had this debate over who are the true stakeholders. Yes. Well, a conventional legal position can accommodate uh, a large number of stakeholders have to be taken account of. 
So we've also got to use the Hain question, not can we, but but should we, and that that requires judgment. Um, and and so you've got you've got to have people who uh, I'd call holistic. Um, you also have to be smart, and smart people can hire other smart people without feeling threatened. If you've got mediocre leadership, you generally have mediocre senior executives. Outstanding leaders are not threatened. Um, when I was a lawyer, I always loved having people smarter than me because it made life easier. Very common sense, isn't it? Mm. What about the appointment of directors? Is there enough due diligence done? That is a really cha- that's that's a challenging issue. Uh, you do DD um, and you talk to referees, and, mm. and in most cases, they're invariably uh, very supportive. I've had one a couple of cases where I've rung a referee and said. Whatever you do, don't hire X um, or point X. Um, But I think you've, you've, yes, I I think more DD needs to be done um, where you you go in depth talking to people who have worked with the individual when they were in a professional or or working career just to understand um, their characteristics, personalities. And, but I found that when you do a thorough uh, DD, um, you get what you are expecting. And so you have to be up for the fact that if, if someone is a director who's the loyal opposition, yeah. they, will, they will be a robust challenger. Um, you'll find other people who are very detailed and you can, you can accommodate both of those. You need a detailed person for some roles. Uh, you need the robust challenger who can do it in a collegiate way uh, for boards. And then you'll you'll find out who are, who are the who are the strong people in a crisis. How did X company Y or Z had had a crisis? How did how did X perform? And uh, did they head for the hills, yeah. or were they really there to assist the chair and the CEO? So so I I think that's that's my learning. We have to do better on DD. You mentioned a couple of things, which was um, the role of the professional NED as opposed to uh, when you first started out, people were reti- retiring. Mm. That was the next career. A recent guest of ours suggested that success of a business, 30% of it is impacted by the composition of the board. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, I think, um, frankly, uh, it's it's the, the CEO and his or her leadership team that create the success of companies. Um uh, I've been on some successful company boards, but we we were we had an oversight role. Um, we yes, we were there when there was the good times and the bad times. Yes, but you'd have to give the the laurels and the credits and the triumphal march to the uh, to to the CEO and their team. But in the composition of a board, Kevin, I guess what I was wondering was, as you said, you're sector agnostic mm. with. I guess greater scrutiny of boards now. Are you feeling more pressured to have people with stronger or closer industry pedigrees to boards? What's how do you come about mm. this? You know the build of your board. Well, um, I'll give you an f- example. My, my strengths now are the governance and stock exchange experience and capital markets, and so in both the boards I'm on now, they're they're highly technical. So we've we've in the case of pharmaceuticals, you need we've got biochemists on the board right, okay, and yeah. these people talk the talk and they know the, the chemicals that we are we are dealing with 
Um, so there's no question, Greg, that you need industry experts and people who can tell you wh- where the industry is headed. Um, and even inside of pharmaceutical industries, uh, radio pharmaceuticals is a is a specialist sector of its own. Um, yep. So the the, uh, the gifted amateur um, has a has a has a limited role today. You, you, you're going to need you're going to need uh, people who could chair your audit committee who are who have been auditors or or CFOs. You, you can't you can't have someone. When I was on Pioneer, I got eventually appointed as chair of the audit committee. Right. Okay. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't do that today. Fair enough. Are you finding that uh, again with the, the extra amount of scrutiny on boards and uh, names and back pages of papers, etc., there's still a willingness that I I'm going to move into the boardroom, or a number of people saying, "Look, I've done it. That's enough. I don't want to be a part of that circuit anymore." Uh, well, look, there's some there's some very good people who have worked overseas uh, for, for majors who have come back to Australia yep. and have said, "No, we're not we're not going to take public company boards. We will we will take we'll, we'll go and work for private equity." Yeah. Uh, we will become investors and and uh, assist management, but we don't we don't want the regulatory burden or the scrutiny or the fact that um, we're subject to all sorts of factors like shorts uh, short termism. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's become um, an avalanche, but okay. but some really good people won't won't take boards. And Kevin, are we spending enough time on business? Or are we spending too much, as you said earlier, on the regulatory side? Uh, well, look, having left the financial services industry now, my worry is that that they will become utilities, and that they will cease to be. Um, they'll be highly regulated. I mean, a bank board now has lost the right, to, the autonomy to appoint directors and to set remuneration. That's going to be the subject to of oversight. Okay. So I think that that might chill uh, innovation and creativity. And as a result, that will that will go to other places. That's that's not a um, that's not good to hear, is it? No, because the, the banking sector is really important, um, yeah. and it, it's um, absolutely fundamental for our our society that we have an effective bank, not only for for corporations but for individuals. With the social licensing, we focus on um, social thinking. How do you check the company culture? Kevin, you're you're the chair. How do you how do you actually litmus test and go past Mr. Moore? Um, what do you do? Oh well, as I said earlier, Greg, we we have the backward looking. We look at customer complaints. We look at staff satisfaction. We look at compliance breaches. We look at regulatory breaches. But going forward, um, what are we doing in terms of staff training? How many uh, town halls did Nicholas Moore undertake uh, when he was CEO? And he was impeccable every time he went on a visit, there was a staff town hall, uh, which was very open and he, he dealt with a whole range of questions. Uh, have we got leaders who uh, got the ability and are doing um, training of staff where there's major legislative changes? Have, have they explained to the staff the policy behind that and have not delegated to an accounting firm a manual um, and a box-ticking exercise, but people really understanding what the future of financial advice uh, expects of people in that sector and I, th- I think where people where the where the banks have realized they they can't manage that they've exited that uh, that particular business and so you're seeing probably retail advice being subsumed by by people going away from advisors and putting their money into industry funds was the Hain report a surprise to you the outcomes 
Yes, it was. I, I mean, I was an insider and I didn't realise the extent of misconduct, um, fees for no service, uh, being dead people being charged, yeah. people being sold insurance that at, at the time they purchased it could never claim on it. That shocked me. That that uh, that surprised me because, and, and as I say, I was an insider, and I thought um, I thought we were on top of those issues. So where does no, I'm not necessarily looking for fault, but where does the um, the culture come from? Is it the top, and is that was that the issue? Where was the lack of questioning, or you know, we're not naming names, but what's your what's well, your well, broader thinking? Clearly, the neither the boards nor the CEOs knew what was happening. Yeah, and. Uh, I, my, my thesis, Greg, has been that we, we fail to understand the future of financial advice or the consumer protection provisions. And the consumer protections responsible lending were an absolutely seismic change because historically, if I lent you money uh, to buy a house, um, I, I was interested to know that you could service the debt. But right. if you couldn't, I sold you up. Um, the new law requires you to be able to say, I this man can you Greg can service this loan without me having to exercise the mortgage. And that's a that's a huge change in what is required in, in lending. And I don't think we've got our heads around that. In the case of financial advice, um, <laughs> the view was that you had to be in a position where uh, you put your client's interests first. And we know that uh, what was happening is advisors were actually pushing their own products, and they were not they were not thinking of their clients. And you'd think this is this is obvious. Why isn't this the case? Well, that that's how the industry worked. But no one actually went down to the trading floor and said these are the new rules. You've got to have written advice. You've got to be thinking of your clients. You can't be pushing your own products. Without naming the name, Kevin, um, one particular company stands out, which has been um, unfortunately badly hurt by all this. Are they a classic organisation that would you suggest would better served by going private for a while? <laughs> um, look, um, uh, my daughter actually works for them. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying the, to think the, the company, but it's also, but, but very, very difficult when you're listed. Oh, very. Yeah. So, is that a potential? No, is that a, a classic bit of way of thinking that we should that would be prime for taking taking off the market? Sorting out their, their their issues, restructuring the business, then coming back to the market. Gosh, I haven't thought of that. It's uh, it's um, some of these companies are pretty big, aren't they? Yeah, I don't uh, know if it can be done or not. But it's- uh, I guess what's happened with the bank um, the bank transactions is most of the companies have been so- most of their businesses have been sold to foreign organisations, which are private. Yeah, I mean, sorry, they're public, but they're no longer in the public domain in Australia. So, yep, that's probably the solution. So, Kevin, taking that train of thought again in regards to a, a business which is in the public limelight, is listed, and has a lot of work to do, how are you going to make a bonus? Well, that's the issue. Um, the corporate governance groups say pay for performance. And uh, when, when I've had this situation in a, in a couple of companies I've been involved in, I pointed out, well, we can't promise you um, good results in the, in the first two or three years, but we are going to turn this company around. And uh, uh, if we're going to keep good people, we're going to have to reward their efforts. And so you have to we have to be more creative in the way we remunerate people of troubled companies. And the, the issues that arose were not of the, the company's making. It wasn't as if the management was incompetent. It was the external circumstances which required a pivot 
So therefore, you, 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 you had to recognize that. Now, we got a strike, and then we eventually persuaded them of the logic of what we were doing, and, and there was a happy ending. The role of proxies, we, is it overstepped the mark? Oh, look, there's been a lot of discussion. David Crawford and Lee Clifford were keen to have them regulated. ASIC has no appetite for that. Okay. Um, but I do think they've now got a code of conduct, but certainly there's some basic housekeeping that needs to be done. So were they, when they write a report, they should, I think, submit it to the company to see that factual errors are, are corrected because often the report is uh, incorrect and uh, they have to issue a – sometimes they'll issue a – a uh, correction. Sometimes they won't, and the company then is put to the task of uh, undertaking the corrections. And other regulators, Kevin, we mentioned it earlier, but are they being um, a little bit more aggressive than in, than in the past? Oh yes. Well, I mean, following Hain, the head of enforcement at ASIC says we litigate and we don't we don't uh, negotiate. Mm, right. um, I think that's going to lead to a lot of congestion in the courts. And uh, that's a very expensive way to uh, to deal with regulatory breaches. So I, I think the enforceable undertakings that uh, the previous group at ASIC uh, undertook were very helpful. As Nicholas Moore said at the Royal Commission uh, at Macquarie, we learned a lot from our correction of what had happened and we came out better for it. Also, we remediated um, what needed to be remediated. You've been through some ups and downs. Where do you see the plays uh, in China versus US, uh, Europe versus Brexit? Uh, in terms of trade. Mm. And, and in terms of um, confidence in business in Australia. Oh, well, look, look at the environment's very, very challenging because there's so much noise. You've got a president in the United States who tweets policy, uh, but he changes policy on a, on a nightly basis. Uh, you've, got, you've got Brexit and the EU very... Both, both uh, the UK and Europe, EU, are very distracted with the exit of the United Kingdom. And you've got a, uh, in China, you've got a, a president who uh, is changing the direction of that country so that state-owned enterprises are gaining more uh, more support from, from the centre, whereas previously there was a lot of support for the private sector. So these are these are challenging geopolitical times uh, to to navigate, and and so you you really have to be disciplined about what you think is noise and what is what is fact. I know you're talking about the navigation, Kevin, but do you think there's enough positive discussion by our business leaders and our um, and our politicians about the opportunity that awaits us in Australia? Um, I think it's it's uneven. Actually, the person who I have a huge respect for is Dr. Lowe. Um, he is very good at articulating the state of uh, Australia and very clear as to what he thinks we should be doing. To he, His view is we're okay, but if we want to be good, not necessarily great, yes. but if we want to make, make Australia good again, um, there's a number of steps we can take to um, uh, engage in uh, productivity reform. And also, uh, he, he was quite clear on how we can improve um, wage growth and, and uh, believe it or not, uh, inflation. That's now a good thing after you and I have had years of being told it's a terrible thing. That's right. But, but he, he's, he's very clear as to what needs to be done. And he's pointed out to the politicians that he doesn't need to tell them, just go and look at the 10 years of reports which haven't been acted on. If you look at the last 10, 15 years of 
leadership that we've had in this country, um, political leadership. What advice would you give the current Prime Minister and his team uh, in regards to opportunities and sense of reform? You know, there's arguments around we had opportunities in regards to tax reform. Uh, you mentioned the environment. Um, what would you suggest? Well, I'd suggest they go back and look at the Henry report on tax. Uh, that's a good starting point as to as to tax reform. Um, there's discussion about indirect taxes and there's, there's discussion about land tax. But the central thesis is why would you why would you tax effort? So people who are energetic, working hard, why would you have one of the highest tax rates, individual tax rates in the world if you want to if you want to pursue innovation and creativity? And for people to find Australia attractive to to stay in. What about company tax? Oh well, we're clearly uncompetitive. Uh, <laughs> the great tax haven today, of course, is the United Kingdom. Um, was a twenty three percent going down to twenty one? Um, it's and we're 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 thirty, so we're, we're we're simply not competitive. And if you've got companies like uh, our great companies like CSL or um, or Cochlear and so on, yep. who've got global platforms, mm-hmm. uh, if you're going to build your next plant, um, CSLs, I recently went and had a look at one of their plants in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, now, Switzerland is a tax haven, but on the other hand, it, under Australian tax law, if you're conducting a trading business, um, you are not taxed in Australia as because you're in a tax haven. You, you pay the Swiss tax. And the Swiss tax is much more generous to, to companies like CSL than um, it is in Australia. Can I ask you a broader question? There's some great Australian businesses that have gone offshore. Macquarie, you've been one. Mm. And others that we don't need to say the names, but we know of. And yet I'm sure if we spoke to most chief execs and chair and asked, was there ever a minister to help you uh, in support of this great Australian company in building uh, relationships and building opportunities, I've got a bad feeling the answer is going to be never once saw them turn up. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Because we, we do hear that the Americans make an effort. The Europeans uh, are regularly known to roll out very senior and sometimes ministers of mm. state. Um, what are your thoughts? Look, I think you make a good point. I think culturally we've we've not tended to depend upon on uh, ministerial or prime ministerial support. Um, but as you, as you point out, I think when the French were tendering for the submarines, um, it went to the president. Yeah. So I think that that is a good point that we we could use the services of our prime minister appropriately, where we have major transactions. Kevin, your focus has changed now. You're not necessarily at the big end of the ASX. It's come down um, to the growing and developing mm. organisations. Is that been deliberate? And and why is it, why is it? Um, well, the fact is the opportunities are at the smaller end of town. And I've really actually enjoyed it. You you get very close to the executives. Um, it's the regulations a lot less, which is extremely attractive. Yeah. Um, and you also got a global footprint, so that to be successful in these companies, you're going to have to have a product or services which are uh, sought around the world, not just servicing the Australian market. So, in one of the companies, we had a, we had a very good business of of um, of undertaking activities in Australia, but we decided we wanted a global footprint, and for that we needed um, platforms which provided services or products uh, on a global basis. And so it's extremely interesting. Uh, at, at you know my final my final stage uh, to be 
be back on a global footprint again rather than in a purely domestic uh, domestic situation. Not to say I haven't enjoyed them, but but this is this is these are new horizons, and and I think that's uh, our tech sector and our bio biopharma sector are very attractive places. There's some very good policies in place to to promote them, and uh, we're part we've got the potential to be a 21st century sector. So I'm, that's that's the attraction to me. And what about the red tape, Kevin? Is it? Not going to be prohibitive in that sense. No, it's not. It's it's much it's much less. Okay, we've got the Modern Slavery Act and and uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but they're manageable. Um, so we don't we don't have we can set our own remuneration. We don't have to decide who can join our board. We don't have to go to back to, and we don't have individual responsibilities and reporting to a regulator. So it's a no. It's much more attractive. You had a very busy business life and a man of influence. Where do you take the time to think? Well, it's generally. Uh, weekends, Greg, and you you um you actually have to do a lot of reading, um, looking at uh, and there's a lot of material from a variety of sources, whether it's uh, uh, Harvard Business School journals to the Economist, but also uh, the um, the management consulting firms put out some very thoughtful pieces, and uh, I'm a serial attender of of lectures and conferences. Uh, where, I, where I've never come away without some insights that I hadn't uh, I, I hadn't uh, thought about. Kevin, it comes up every day. What is diversity for you? We tend to think of it in gender diversity. And look, Australia's made great progress since two thousand and eight. Um, we've done we've done very well. So in the top top one hundred, we've got thirty percent of uh, women on boards. But um, as a Always with statistics, it, it hides the fact that there are only one woman on some boards and in some boards still no women. But I think um, diversity goes beyond just gender. It's uh, diversity of outlook, diversity of personalities. Um, and the area that we haven't got to grips with yet is the the fact that our society is extremely diverse. What, 50% of our citizens are have been born overseas or have been children of first-generation Australians. And getting those people um, onto our boards, if they're appropriately qualified, is is a challenge. And Greg, you at Blenheim have a, have a big task here. It, you, you've, got, you've got to start uh, producing um, uh, candidates from that sector. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I don't think it needs to be force-fed. Mm. Because these people are often very comfortable in the private sector, uh, in family businesses, um, and they don't seek to go onto public boards. But I think, uh, and so, but certainly in the government sector, to the extent there are still boards and, and committees, um, that would be a very good start. You make a really good point there, Kevin. The issue that I get is the pushback from chair and from boards, not necessarily willing to accept that, i.e., Billy Bloggs or Mary hasn't had uh, 10, 15 years on a board or they haven't run a particular business across this sector. Gee whiz, we go to someone out of the government, you know, what, are they really going to understand the pressures of a, of a listed environment? That, When it comes to the crunch, Greg, really like the fact that they made uh, your short list and then number five, but I don't think we're going to go with them. That's that's the challenge that mm. we get back. And I, I, I like what you just said. Do you think there is a willingness to think like that? Because diversity does come up 
every mm. day of the week, mm. and it is normally around gender. Mm. But you might talk, as you say, look, someone who's been outstanding chief exec from a private company is entrepreneurial, et cetera, wanting to make the move into the board, and you know it could have an impact. A lot of the time, Kevin, we can't even get it up in the, in the discussion. Well, that's interesting because I, I think that if you've got people on the board who who know the governance, the ASX rules, um, not everyone in the board has to be on a, an expert in every area. Um, and, you know, what we want is a, a champion team, not a team of champions. Yeah. And so someone who's who's got skills in a particular area, uh, let's say we're trying to market to, to China and that person has, has relationships in China and, yeah. and maybe even family, yeah. that would be a wonderful person to have. Now, usually they're not interested in going to public companies because they're, they're doing very well outside. So I, I, I guess, um, Greg, your challenge is you've got to – become more persuasive. That's the challenge. You're 100% right because I think we're missing out on so much opportunity. That's yep. what keeps me awake at night, Kevin, is that um, you do your searches, you want to do the very best for your, your clientele, and you think, are they going to be open to that because there is some absolute outstanding talent, which may be not necessarily coming out on the CV, but mm. we all know mm. can bring a lot to the table. Mm. Which I guess went back to my first my earlier point was around uh, boards thinking about you know the due diligence on the the potential candidates who are going to join the, the board and the impact they're going to have. When you're making your appointments, are you hiring for the future, Kevin? Um, yeah, the answer is yes, we are. And again, you've made you've made a very good point in that question. That is, Australia is going to get more diverse as a, as a community, not less. And so people like us are probably um, going to be eventually a minority. And so, yes, you'd want people who, who can help us navigate into the new world. Speaking of the new world, just, can we just take it one step further? What, what is your thought and sense of the broader economy where we hear about the debates on immigration? That's diversity. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that's also a big stimuli yep. on the growth of the economy, but is it too much reliant on that as opposed to innovation? I'm a reconstructed supporter of immigration. I think if you look at the um, – this is not the only criteria – the 10 richest people in Australia, I think uh, eight of them are from first-generation uh, immigrants. Okay. And these people came into Australia after the Second World War as refugees and have made incredible contribution to our country. Um, what would your advice now be, Kevin, to those contemplating um, commencing in a career as an NET? Well, um, be curious. Make sure that you... Um, continue to expand your knowledge, uh, have an absolutely firm base of, of understanding what's required of a director, nothing like the AICD director's course, if I could put a plug for them. Okay. That's a very good That's a very good start uh, to to a director's career. Um, get yourself a mentor if you can. Have, um, you, have you had one during your life? No, I had role models, actually. Okay. I, I, I listened to a lot of your podcasts and everyone else seemed to have a mentor, <laughs> but I, I, had, I had role models. Okay. And are you a mentor to anybody? Yes. Uh, I, I mentor uh, women directors who are board ready, and yep. that's been extremely rewarding. And that's morphed into a number of women directors reaching out to me, uh, seeking seeking advice. Do they understand how the board, you know, the, the implications on, on a board these days? Well, I think they do. Um, look, it's, it's really um, often a matter of style. Um, th- these people are very intelligent. They're extremely... Um, uh, diligent in in pursuing knowledge, um, 
I mean, a lot of people go to Silicon Valley and go to Israel to yes. understand what's what's happening. So, so they're extremely good at doing that. It's a case of just understanding um, the intricacies of interpersonal relationships, um, because you're putting a whole lot of disparate personalities together in a board, and and being influential in a board is is really important. And if you want to become a chair eventually, um, uh, having having the, the characteristics that make a successful chair something that is acquired over time. So I uh, I think that we that the it's very hard for economists to actually measure that but mm-hmm. to me immigrants have got the drive and energy um, and it goes from the first to the second and the third generation uh, we've been we've been so benefited by these people i mean some of them don't don't go necessarily into business but go into academia or go uh, public service but these people have made a great contribution another question kevin in the broader pursuit of growth for this nation is there a now, we look back many years ago and they had the accord with Hawke and Keating and there was a the genuine mm. feel that it was coming. I was only very young, mm. but I remember looking at it and watching it on TV, being inspired by the fact that there was discussions around um, on both sides of the fence. Is there enough of that? I think we were very fortunate that period. You had you had Bob Hawke, who had a long history of, of trade union leadership. Bill Kelty, who's, who I've been on a board with, he's a remarkable man. Okay. Um, and although he's a, he's a trade unionist, but he, he's someone who wants to work with enterprises for mutual success. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, I don't think we have that situation because, of course, the union movement has the, the numbers of people in the union have declined significantly. Mm-hmm. So they tend to be centred in or located in areas of either government businesses or or places like universities or teachers' federation. Or industries like construction, which which don't face foreign competition, so um, we we have to uh, we can't have to recreate a situation where we get collaboration, and that that was the hallmark of the accord collaboration, which was remarkably successful. And then, of course, you had uh, Hawke and Keating, who, in hindsight, were a remarkable duo. There was also trust in business in those days. Mm. Where where do you see it now? Oh well, if you look at the the various uh, um, groups that do analysis, uh, it's pretty depressing. Um, uh, it, it's it's a it's it, it's a difficult statistical issue because people people have a distrust of banks, but when you poll them about their relationship with the banks, they're often very pleased. But <laughs> true, yes. So you've got this dichotomy between between the, what the community think about particular sectors. And uh, and and the individual's relationship, but in, industry's got a lot to answer for. It's, it, in terms of transparency, um, you've only got to look at um, food and the fact that we have been promoting products which are, which are not healthy. We haven't we haven't empowered the consumer to look at the the label and uh, determine whether it's got sugar or other other materials which they don't want to eat. Yeah. As a chair, are you a coach? How do you? How, what is the role of a chair in, to the chief exec? Sorry. Yeah. Well, look, that, 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 yeah, <laughs> one tries to be, um, but but sometimes there's some very self-actualized CEOs mm. who who um, are very bright, um, probably smarter than me, uh, but but I, I can I can navigate pitfalls uh, because I've there's nothing there's nothing like experience of what not to do and what to do than uh, 30 or 40 years of sitting on boards. 
if you roll it back 30, 40 years, and we roll it back when you were a young man, what advice would you give Mr. Kevin McCann those days? I think I'd be um, I'd be more um, across STEM subjects. As a young boy, I got rather ill and had to go to the country to recover, and no one ever gave me any coaching to catch up where I missed out in maths and physics right. and languages. Yeah, I, so a whole and as you know, maths is all about building blocks. Yeah, history didn't matter if I hadn't studied France. I could I could always study Germany and do that question. Yeah. So in hindsight, that was that was a great pity. And if you look at some of the um, uh, really outstanding leaders in the world, they've had very good mathematics uh, basis. And I, I'm a great fan of mathematicians. They can do anything. On that, Kevin, thank you very much for joining us today. Good. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to No Limitations. 